You're listening to a conversation with Esther Perel and Lori Melikar, recorded at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, September 2018. Please enjoy this unedited discussion. Um, so I'm here with Esther Perel. She's a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author who is recognized as one of today's most insightful and original voices on modern relationships. Welcome, Esther. Thank you. My pleasure. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. We've had so many conversations over the last couple of weeks, um, and I'd love to um, ask some of the questions again, and maybe we can dig a little deeper into things we haven't yet covered. Um, First, uh, question may sound like a tall order, but I know that you're you're capable of it. Um, Could you give us a brief overview of how relationships have impacted health and how that's evolved over the course of time? I mean, we have always lived in relationships, networks, communal networks, extended family networks, um, um, intimate partnership networks, friendships. We live in relationships. Um, They either uh, nurture us, they accompany us, they enhance us, they fill us up, they give us meaning, they give us a sense of importance, etc., all the way to the other side where they can deplete us, they can be hurtful, they can be painful, they can be either neglect. You know, trauma often exists on the spectrum between too much of something or too little of something. And so, um, but it is on the extremes of that um, where we do not feel safe and therefore we cannot feel free. Um, and those that spectrum between the anchor and the waves, the ability to feel safe, secure, stable, anchored, and also to be able to go out and explore and experience and feel free and express ourselves, that integration of these two fundamental sets of human needs is essential to relationships, and it enters directly into the way we feel. First of all, because our emotions are embodied experiences, so they enter into our body. They speak and they either speak in their own language, the language of emotion, or they morph into a somatic language because in some cultures and in some genders, the somatic language is more accepted than the emotional language. So we translate it. We talk about necks and backs and stiffness and tightness and aches and pains uh, or nerves uh, or breakdowns um, or depression instead of sadness. Um, and we have a language to that... that that will describe our feelings either of hope or hopelessness, of agency or powerlessness, of efficacy or inadequacy. I mean, we live on a range between those, um, those different experiences. So if you are connected, you are less likely to be depressed, you are living longer, you, sur- you take better care of your health, you take better care of your hygiene, you eat better, You dress better. Um, If you are more separate, you tend to do less. There is something about us taking better care of ourselves when it matters to more than just ourselves. Wonderful. So why do you think that as society we haven't taken relational health as seriously as physical or mental health? And is that beginning to shift? Well, I think the shift is the fact that I'm here and I'm probably not the only one, is that... The, there is there is a real desire today to delve into the world of relationships and to understand 
that it is not a soft skill, but a kind of a bottom line. It is actually part of the foundation that our problems exist within relational systems. And those relational systems determine the degree to which we define it as a problem, how important we give it, how much importance we give to the problem, how we seek help for it, who accompanies us throughout it, and when we think we are actually restored and, and well again. So relationship thinking, relational intelligence, as I call it, is really entering, partly because there is a feeling all over the world of radicalization, and there is a kind of a global feeling of people understanding each other less and less and being less tolerant and being, with, you know, there is a profusive talk about empathy on one side with a growing nationalism and, uh, uh, and, and, and echo chambers on the other side. Isn't it interesting? At a time when people seem to less and less connect to others than them is the time when we are most groping for the tissue, for the bridge that will somehow keep us connected to each other. And that means relating to the experience of others, and that means more tolerant and therefore less violent, etc., etc. It's a very, very rife and ripe time for relational thinking on an individual level, on a communal level, and on a societal level at this moment. Mm. We Part of the role of the pioneer team within the foundation is to identify signals and emerging trends that might affect our ability to build a, what we call a culture of health in the future. And one of the trends we have recently seen emerging that comes a re- as a result of fragmentation of the educational system there. In, when, when I was young, almost everyone I knew was in the public school and had the public school spare, shared experience. Uh, there's fragmentation within the healthcare system. People are, are getting very, have very different experiences when they, uh, when they visit a provider. And I wonder if you could reflect a little bit about what you think about the idea of a shared experience, how that might be changing, how it might be evolving, how it might be diminishing, and any role that that might might play in how we're thinking about relationships and, and even what is appropriate behavior or what are what are role models. I mean, I would insert first, it's like from when I think about expanding the definition of health, it means that I'm looking at, you know, major stress factors, right, that have to do with finance, that have to do with work, that have to do with relationships and how they impact physical stress. But you could choose another word for all of these and just say life enters health. It's life. You can name each component of life, but basically it's our experience of our life is what will determine our experience with our whatever, asthma, diabetes, uh, bipolarity, etc. So that's the first thing, is to really think in integrated way. The fact is things are interdependent. And when you shift one piece, it will have an effect on others. I don't know why that is so difficult to think. Because we have become so highly individualistic and therefore fragmented or segmented in the way that we think about everything, about everything. You know, one doctor doesn't talk to the other and they each kind of deal with an organ. Um, it, it, it's kind of mind-blowing, especially when you are the patient. You realize what that kind of... Uh, because you become the subject on on the canvas where that kind of segmentation is happening. Now, um, that's a different um, it's a different point than the question that you are asking, which is repeated now. 
Um, are you seeing that there is a trend that yes. we have less of a shared experience and how that might play yes. out? Yes. Um, yes and no. Because, you know, when, when life was organized around religious structures, it's not like people had the same experiences. But everybody dealt with three major questions. Every religion has dealt with three major questions. What do you do with the unintelligible, the ununderstandable? What do you do with pain? And what do you do with evil? Not that they don't exist, but here is a way to deal with it. You know, why does bad things happen to good people? How do you deal with the moral questions? And how do you deal with what, that which you cannot understand, capture? And everybody did it in their own way, but everybody gathered around those, those essential three themes. So I don't know if people had more shared experience. I mean, I don't think that the people, you know, at the court had more in common with the peasants. But there has been a period where we created middle class. And that dimension of the middle class, which is about 150 years old, together with the nation states, etc., etc., created a profound sense of democratization on everything. Girls began to go to school. People began to read and write. There was alphabetization all over the West. I mean, these, these are not very old trends. So sometimes when we think we used to be more equal and you know, we were equal for a rather short amount of time, you know. But it is true that today, if you dismantle those public institutions, if you don't have a social welfare system, if you don't, if you create one charter school which you are happy about and, and leave the, the public school system to language on its own, if you just say government is ineffective and can't do anything, and you t kind of take matters in your own hand, that has always been the beginning of authoritarian regimes, basically. You take matters in your own hand. You say, this doesn't, this is not orderly. I will bring order to this. And these discourses have existed every time. Some people say it's a 70-year cycle, you know, where you go from an authoritarian regime back to a more democratic, more peace-wanting, more egalitarian, and then, you know. At this moment, it is absolutely clear that more than anything, it is your means, your economic means, that will determine your access, the quality of the services, your life, your longevity. I mean, this thing we just heard about San Antonio, where people were living 20 years less, it is, it is astounding. And but this, I'm a European, and I do come from a social welfare system, and it's different. The, these discrepancies that you have here is astounding. Period. It's uh, on 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 every front. On reproductive health care, uh, you name it. You name it. You name it. Mm -hmm. It's it's. Um, you don't want to be old in America. You don't want to be sick in America. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that you don't want to be poor in America. There's a lot of things that you, the level of psychological vulnerability, and because it is so individualistic, it is still seen as your responsibility. You made it. You can brag up the wazoo. You don't, you have only yourself to blame. And that, is, that breeds a level of loneliness. That breeds shame. That breeds violence. I mean, it's, it's a sequence of things. Um, and I do think they are interconnected. So you speak nine languages, and I've heard you sometimes talk about how there's a word for this in one language that we may not have in English and, and, and vice versa. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit about language and how it relates to the work that you try to do and the way that you try to convey what you're talking about. 
also think about how language may have changed or as I understand it in several examples you've given the meaning of a word uh, may have changed over time and whether that can help us um, understand anything about our struggle with talking about this mm, stuff. See, I have done this study more in relation to family and in relation to romantic love and coupledom um, because that's been the kind of the the locus where I've I've spent more, more of my time. So, you know, we use the word marriage, but it doesn't mean the same at all that it that what it was. What do I mean by that? Marriage has existed for a while, but marriage as an economic enterprise from which you have no exit, in which the woman is the possession of the man, in which any sex leads to children, in which um, men have the privilege of double lives and women uh, are still stoned to death just for looking in the wrong direction, in which children are an economic asset, etc., etc., etc. It is a very different marriage than marriage that comes in your late 20s, early 30s, in which you are looking for your soulmate that is not just going to be the person with whom you share a checkbook, but is also going to help you become the better version of yourself because it's a self-actualization model of marriage in which you're going to sit and think together, do we want to have children? How many children do we want to have? What's the gender of the kids that we would want them to be? In which you can leave if it's not good enough. In we- I mean, this is a whole different marriage. Intimacy the word we've used forever. But intimacy as in a convivencia, the sharing of a daily life, the vicissitudes of, of, of dealing with kids and the land and the storms and the droughts and the weather and all of that is not the same as intimacy that is an into me see in which the closeness comes from me inviting you inside myself, my personal internal life with whom I'm going to share with you my dreams, my anxieties, my aspirations, and that's very different diary. That emotional diary has nothing to do with the herd. You know, that's a whole new intimacy. Monogamy that isn't one person for life, but that becomes one person at a time is a very different monogamy. Sex that isn't just part of your biology and part of your condition, but sex that becomes a part of your identity, a part of your lifestyle, is a very different definition. Once you socialize sexuality, you're thinking of it completely different than when you just see it as part of your biology. Uh, what other words? Uh, um, I mean, there's so, so many of the foundational language that comes with romantic life or children um, or family life. Um, you know, a family that only survives because the couple is happy enough to want to stay together is a completely different family than a family that is just there and that's it. It's an unquestioned entity. And you, you may like it or not like it. It's a kind of irrelevant you know, a sex that is for duty as a woman's marital duty versus a sexuality that is for pleasure and connection because after two kids you have no other reason for doing it is a completely different sexuality. Once you start to take them apart, every single one of these words, the, the role of the child, the meaning of the child, and, you know, uh, the, the roles, parents, children, husband, wife, husband, husband, wife, wife, when did that ever exist? Trans couples remarried couples, blended family. I mean, we have a multitude of new family configurations that never had a name. That doesn't mean they didn't exist, but they were not categorized. Single-parent families, accordion families, commuter families, gay families. Once you begin like this, you realize that before you talk, you got to define the terms. And they are culturally dependent as well. They do not mean the same. You know, a family that means four people is not the same thing as a family that means 20 people. Couples therapy in the West is often between the primary partners. 
couples therapy in other parts of the world is between the wife and the mother-in-law. That's the unit that determines the system. It's those things. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really amazed and impressed by what you know, what you've learned, but I've also been really struck by your, some of your skills, and these are not, I think, so easily learned, but perhaps. So number one, just your amazing ability to listen. I see it, experience it when I talk with you. I also hear it when I listen to the podcast. I see it in your writing as you talk about the, the interactions you've had with different couples. Um, coupled with that, and perhaps related, is the kindness, I think, that you, you bring to these interactions. I mean, one could say that you're open. You are not accepting of every behavior. You are very quick to point out when something is something that's harmful and should not be something someone thinks that they're mm-hmm. getting, getting away with. But even with folks who are doing things that many of us would think are reprehensible, you treat that challenge uh, you have hope in that person, and you are able to to really treat the situation with a kindness that just uh, really really blows me away. And something that I think that if more of us in all of our work were able to understand, I don't know if that's something that comes natural. I don't know if it's something that needs to shift within us. Um, but I wonder if you have anything that you can you can think about that that goes on in your head as you're exhibiting that. I mean, I think I think that my sources are a few. Um, the easy ones, yes, because I speak multiple languages. I, I, I don't, you know, on the one hand I could say I understand a lot, and on the other hand I could say I'm deeply curious, and I, before I make, you know, before I think I understood. So that's, but there is also, I think I am myself a mutt. I am an amalgamation of many different sources and cultures inside of me. Um, I am a child of, Ili- of two concentration camp survivors. Um, I get kind of trauma in the mother's milk. I also then have two parents who were Ill- 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 illegal refugees from, for another five years. Um, so I also understand, you know, the overt and the covert. Um, I, I understand fascism, our dogmatic thinking, and I smell it. And wherever I think people are conveniently accepting things because it's just become the way that you talk about this or agree, it's like conventional or consensus thinking. Something in me says, is it really so? Is that really the way it is? Or is that just comfortable for us to think like that right now? You know, norms change. Not too long ago, parents hit their kids. It was a norm. That's how you raise them. You should know. You know, you build character. Today, you can call child protection services. So... You know, how did that suddenly shift? In 30 years, how did something that was highly encouraged, that was completely accepted, normative, integrated, become an aberration, a deviance? Fascinating. So um, I think what I am is deeply curious, non-judgmental, but with a strong moral compass. Those things actually, you know, I do, when I see oppression or, or, or manipulation or misguided uses of power that humiliate others, it's, it's very quick. But I also think that righteousness is a problem too. And righteous indignation on the part of other people who are willing very quick to point finger at others and not look at themselves. And once you do couples therapy, you become deeply attuned to that because so much of couples' life is about seeing what the other person is doing to us and abdicating our sense of responsibility 
And I do come from an existentialist European tradition where I believe that taking responsibility is an expression of freedom and sovereignty, and <clears throat> which is part of why I study desire too. So I'm deeply interested in the places where people remain free. Um, and that came from concentration camp to coupledom. <laughs> so you could think they have nothing in common, but they do. They have in common what happens when you become institutionalized. And a relationship is an institution, a marriage is an institution, a family is an institution, a company is an institution. And they rob us of a certain freedom. And then you have those who manage to hold on to that. How do they do it? And the freedom is a freedom of thought. It's a freedom of not falling into the paradigm. Everybody is seeing this, but the creative people are always the ones who actually went and looked completely different. When everybody else was searching here, you know, looking for the keys under the light, they actually went not where it was obvious, but somewhere else. And I think it's that, that that advances us. As I listen to you and I try to think about what lessons I might take, and colleagues, as we're all trying to aspire to be better listeners and to be kinder in our work and to be more empathetic, I'm reminded of a story that you told me when we were talking before about uh, how you raised your children. Do you remember... But what, what I'm talking what did about. I say? You said that it was very important to you that your children spent time in other households. Yes. Which is very different from what many parents, right. I think. I mean, I'm a traveler. Doing. I've hitchhiked half the globe. I, I, and I really think that you learn about you in the presence of the other. That's where you discover yourself. Um, and I thought, you know, I've worked with mixed couples forever which were couples who often were going through immigration but in their own living room. And they all realized who they were and what mattered and what was specific. I'm sure this, you've had that experience as yourself. Because they were you know, looking at contrast, contrast highlights, and, uh, or difference. You know, difference highlights specificity. So for my children, it was the same thing. I definitely wanted them to be multilingual because I think it's a door into other worlds. And that meant that I wanted them to see how other people do it. What do they do? How do they eat? How do they sit at the table? How do kids talk to adults? Who gets up? Who doesn't get up? You know, um, what, who do you say hello to when you walk into the people's homes? You know, in my book, you first say hello to the parents. And my kids taught that to their friends. It's like, but then, you know, you, 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 you're all alone today. So you need reinforcement. And the reinforcement is not by looking at other people who do exactly the same thing as you, but by other people who grapple with exactly the same challenges as you. And then your kids become actually much more adaptable. They also realize that you're not necessarily right, but this is the way we do it. And that's why you're going to do it like this here, not because it's the only way. And from that place, you know who you are and you can relate to those who are not like you. Fascinating. So I, you know, and the same thing was true in reverse. We had sleepovers from age three. Friends would come to their, our house, and suddenly my kids were so well behaved. It was very nice to know. If, if people said, oh, they're so nice when they come to us, you knew it had entered. But they were not going to show you that, that satisfaction you get later. So for a long time, it's other people who tell you what you're doing works. It's entering. They, they know how to, be, how to relate, how to behave, how to assess a situation, how to have good judgment, how to know when you do risk assessment and risk, risk taking, all of that stuff. 
which, re which is what kids mostly learn. When do you play and when do you come back to base? Well, I did have a, um, wanted to, this is something else I think we talked about a long time ago, um, thinking about advice that you gave to your children. So you made the point this morning that in America, sex is, a, is, a, is the risk factor as opposed to um, uh, unprotected sex or something that yes, we might care more about being irresponsible. Um, how do you, and you know, this may be personal, but how do you help parents think about how they should be talking about sexual health with their children and at what age and how does that? You start at age four mm. because at age four kids are theologians and they ask you where do we come from and where do we go? And so the, 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 the awareness of death and, and, and birth is the natural leading to talking. Um, that's the first thing. And then you integrate it. You don't sit your kid down for the right moment. You integrate. Sex comes with affection, comes with love, comes with care, comes with sensuality, comes with self-soothing. It, and you, you, it's fundamental to understand that it's an integrated conversation. It's not a conversation about sexual health. It's a conversation about life. And in life, there's relationships. And in relationships, some of them include sexuality. And in the relationship to yourself, it includes sexuality. And it's part of being a human being. And from there, you, you tell stories. You know, when I, I used to like this person, you ask a five-year-old, do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a girlfriend? Is there someone you like more than others? You, that feeling emerges in us. It's not something, you know, you do nothing and you stay disaffiliated and then at 19, suddenly you stumble upon the great love. This is a, is a problematic narrative. You talk about, you know, how, how nice it feels when... when like I, <laughs> I mean... One of the things I've, I have told about is that one of the times when my, one of my sons asked if he could bring a girl, they have, he has to be into girls, and I said, yes, she can come, but I want to know her name and I want her here for breakfast. This is not a surreptitious thing you do in hiding while her parents don't know where she is. You either fundamentally believe that this is a part of human experience and connection, and you treat it with respect and beauty. And you don't do, and you don't, on the one hand, criticize patriarchy and then feed into it. Who are you, lady, that you like my son and that he likes you? Let's meet, sit at a table. You didn't do anything dirty that you need to hide about, that you need to be ashamed about, or brag about, for that matter, which is equally the same extreme. You just had a beautiful experience, a beautiful moment. The best scene at this moment about this is the scene in Call Me By Your Name between the father and the son. Oh. Because the, the way in which he says to him, he was kind, he was good to you, he gave you an initiation into an experience that you will remember for life. And I didn't, then it talks about himself, but what he really says to him, let yourself feel that. It's a beautiful thing. You know, relationships are stories. Sexual adventures are stories. It's nice to have an, an interesting and an exciting and a beautiful story. You don't want a story with a bad aftertaste. It's a lousy story to live with. And when you accumulate a lot of those experiences in the course of growing up, as many people do these days, you become, eh. You know, so you basically, you know, when I wrote Mating in Captivity, one of my kids said, you're going to clear up all these books about sex from the house because it was in the front of the house, my office. And I just said, if I was writing a book about weapons of mass destruction, nobody would say, take this out. I am not going to take this stuff out. And you're going to get used to this. This is a respectable subject. 
It isn't sleazy. It isn't dirty. It isn't, you know, pornographic. It is a part of our existence. And it's a phenomenal thing to see how they became so comfortable with it. And so talking to their friends afterwards, you know, it's that. That's, for me, a, a health. Health is not about not having symptoms or being free of disease or functioning well. Health is about aesthetics, too. It's about a rapport to something. So this might be a little self-serving, but um, as you think about helping children, um, one thing that you learn as a parent, the conventional wisdom, is that you don't necessarily... Can I I explain this to you, Lynn? This is very interesting because it's not just about health. You know, it's one of the most interesting comparatives I did was on child-rearing books from zero to three. So one of the main American books began like this. Your kid is seven months old. It's time to take out your camera. Now you can give him carrots for a week and see if your kid isn't going to spit it out and make a mess everywhere. And if the carrots go down for a week, you can continue with the squash. And when you're done with the yellow and the orange, you can move on to the green. Then you compare it to some of the other books. Four months, which is half the age. And it says, kid doesn't need food at all. You can continue that. But for the tactile, you want that child to develop an experience with the food. For the sociability, you want your child to sit at the table with everybody so that they learn their place at the table. For the palate, you want them to have the sense of smell and taste, etc. And for all of that, you're now going to have, and then it gives you a menu for the four-month-old that includes a brie, brie soufflé and a risotto of God knows what, and this is health, too. It's not just for, for sustenance. It's for the overall you know, experience with food. And that is, that is one difference of... I, I would have said originally it's a difference between a puritanical approach to food versus a more epicurean approach. But fundamentally what I thought is one model of health that is really, you know, making sure that nothing goes wrong and another model of health that is actually about thriving and experiencing the multiplicity of food. I'm glad you gave that example because I think now my example relates to that. So on the one hand, you were giving examples and telling stories about how we need to talk about sexuality from a very early age. Um, I wonder how you advise or think about um, the flip side of that, where our children may learn about things, learn about sexuality, or, or things that relate to sexuality. Porn is the online porn is the example that I'm thinking about uh, at an earlier age than perhaps they are really biologically ready to to handle that kind of information. Yes. And whether <clears throat> how much you prepare a child who hasn't yet asked because they don't know that that exists because you're anticipating they will encounter it. I I think at this stage you go to your kids and you just say you're gonna it's the same way that you say you're gonna stumble on a McDonald's you say you're gonna stumble on porn somebody's gonna show it to you you're gonna see it you know and it's gonna be attractive like a McDonald's it's gonna be interesting it has a smell from a distance you wanna grow you go in there it's a world you've never known you know just here you know it is not reality this is not what if you're into girls and boys or if you're into boys this is not necessarily what people like you know it's a fantasy like when you play your other games and you're in fantasy you are the chief and you are the commander and you do you know oh, I forgot the names of the games that they used to do where they build all these cities and uh, Minecraft no oh. it was before it was uh, oh. 
with the characters rest. and you had to put them in the homes and the whole thing. Anyway, yeah, like, mm. it basically what you say is it's a fantasy and we all have a realm of the imagination but don't expect that this is reality. And uh, in reality, here is what I think you really want to know that is important, you know. Uh, and then you tell them, you know, and you talk to them about the experience of giving and not just the experience of performing and you talk about the connection and you talk about checking in with your partners and you talk about you know um, not not get, taking time and not just doing things because it looks like everybody else is doing that and, and everybody lies about it and you also tell them this is one subject everybody lies about you know boys lie up and girls lie, and girls lie down into, they amplify and they minimize but everybody lies about this subject and and they look at you and you say, I know you're looking at me, but, you know, I'm going to tell you. And they say, I know what I'm doing. And you're going to say, I know you think you know what you're doing. And nevertheless, I continue. And you, don't, you just, it all has to do with your ease. And you, and you, you, know, and you say, look, I'm going to give you another book or two because I think you actually do want to learn. And it's a fantastic curiosity that you have. But let me give you something that I think is going to teach it to you in much better ways. You would want that if you were playing baseball too, if they were into sports or into art. You find the analogy and you say, you know, you wouldn't want me to just show you two moves because that's what porn shows you is a few moves. You know, let me show you actually how to become a real good player. And a real good player is strategic and looks at the whole picture and, and senses in advance and anticipates. Anticipation is very important. It's very different from arousal. You translate it into the age-appropriate metaphors that the kids can relate to. And then you provide them with good sex education. The problem of porn is not that it exists. The problem of porn is that it exists in a vacuum. If you have other stuff, then this is one of the sources of information. Like if you have a city that's a desert food city, it has only fast food. If you have everything and on occasion you want to go in there, it's a very different reality. It's the absence of the rest that makes porn, and it's the abdication of the responsibility of all the educational system to actually talk about sexuality that has made porn become the one source where kids all go and think there is, this is it. And I, I think the problem is not... Everybody wants to be panicked about the children going to watch porn rather than actually looking at a system that is being deficient. Then we talk about consent 20 years later. Excuse me. In Europe, in Belgium, in Holland, we have called the, the week of love. At age four, from kindergarten on, every year there is one week, it's called the week of love, in which we learn about love and connection and parent love, children love, sibling love, romantic love. Uh, we learn about sexuality, the body, anatomy, cleanliness. It's an, a week of love. It's just presented by the teacher. It has a curriculum. Nobody blinks an eye. I think it makes a difference. In the U.S., we have a week of code. And that, what is Coding. that? Coding. The computer coding. coding. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's important, too, but it's something else. Yeah. So the work that we do here influences, we think, and, and, and notice the health of many people, some people like myself. Um, we are focused most intently and, in fact, will not, be successful unless we really affect the health of the most vulnerable um, Americans, people living, and by that we mean just people living in America and the territories. I've been struck by the diversity of couples that you've had on your podcast, by the diversity of backgrounds of people who send you letters, um, and 
and I'm sure that you would say that many of them have the same challenges. But I wonder if you could just, uh, for our last question, focus on how, if you were answering these questions and thinking about these issues and opportunities only for those who are really in poverty, who are really, um, really, really struggling, would you talk any differently? Or how would, how would, you, Absolutely. How would you shift? Absolutely. If I have a, a person whose partner struggles with ALS and, <clears throat> and in the morning she takes care of him and then she goes to work a full-time job and then at night she comes and she takes care of him and she has high blood pressure, the last thing I will tell her is that she needs to go exercise. I mean, am I out of this? Am I checked out or what? You know, it, problems take place in the context. The context is unfortunately sometimes highly stressful and it compounds the illness. You know, it's clear that she needs to take care of herself, but it, it, where, where is she going to begin? Where, where, who first? You know? So then you think more, you know, who could help you sometimes for half an hour? Is there someone in your network? You know, problems, be they any problem, takes place in a context. Relationships take place in a context, and our health takes place in a context. And the context or the, what you call the social determinants is highly economical. Um, so the, we know that caretaking of others is, is one of the big stress factors. And we know that you heal or heal thyself. But some people just don't have you know, where to begin. If the neighborhood is dangerous, if, to, if it's three hours to get to that door, I mean, you name it, it's just, you just don't do it. You, you operate from a system of survival, and survival goes with what's most immediate. And what's most immediate and urgent isn't necessarily what's most important. If you remember the, the old quadrant of, uh, of Covey, you know, we, we tend to go with the thing that's right in front of us. That doesn't mean it's the thing that actually will have the longest lasting impact, etc. But you, you act from anxiety, so you are reactive. And the first thing you do is the thing that's going to give you a, a moment of relief. It's survival mode in, in full, and a lot of people live today in that situation. And to think about health, you know, let's just have their neighborhood have decent food and fresh fruit. That will already be a basic thing. Let's have a, 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 a car that comes to the neighborhood and, and does the immunizations for everybody. And in a public, I think the solution to a lot of health today, healthcare, is public health. Not health care, where you go to see the doctor, but public health that comes into the neighborhood and assesses, you know, what are the two or three critical things that if you changed some of that, it would change a lot of things. Maybe the school has to end a half an hour earlier, or more importantly, it should actually start a little earlier so that people have time to get to all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I can't. I am a deeply contextual thinker. I cannot think about that health without, you know, who, <clears throat> what access do you have to what information? We know that everything is out there, but the majority of the time people don't know where is what. Where is what, you know? Um, I was telling you the story of of, uh, of, of going to work at, Slo- I mean, Sloan Kettering. This is like the, the Mecca, right? To work in prostate cancer, you know, radiology. Why don't you talk about sex with these people? That's a public health thing. Because if you don't talk about sex with these people, you leave these men feeling like they're dumb. And you leave their partners feeling like, you know, that's done too. And, uh, and then you leave them thinking, how many years do I have to live done like that? 
And then you start to create dismantlement of families. And then you start to create children who have to shut. I mean, why don't you just explain and then tell people what they can do about it? That is a pure hell thing. That is a very clear one message that would have so many consequences if you say none of it because it's, nobody knows it. It's not available. I, I have always thought of that example because, and plus it's men talking to men. It's men who are afraid of their own castration who need to talk to other men about how their sexuality is about to change. That is one of the hardest conversations for men to have. Mm-hmm. Honest conversation about sexuality with another man. There's so, so many implications of uh, what you've talked about today and what you've written about for public health. And I'm, I'm hopeful that those that are listening to this and have met you, uh, have, have listened and been touched either by your podcast or your books will, and who are in a position to really influence how we think about health and especially public health will, will, uh, will take it to heart. You certainly put it out there in a way that's very easy for people to, to understand and to Because I think what I try to stimulate is like electromagnetic resonance, right? It's to connect the dots. When you are in a paradigm, you think a certain way. And we are all in paradigms. I think my cross-cultural life and multilingual life has given me the opportunity to always switch paradigms and see that certainty is the enemy of change. If you want change, you have to let go of your certainty and your confirmation bias and your thinking that confirms its own thinking. I am not a major health provider at all, but I can give you connecting dots that will change the way you work if you include those pieces in your thinking the way that it has happened in my work. Thank you so much, Esther Perel. My pleasure.